Hello, this is Russell Davis with The Art of Artists, and we don't often confront questions of taste on this programme, and we shan't again this time, because the works of John Waters, film director and writer, are such direct assaults on the whole notion of taste that it just flies out of the window. If you don't know his work, well, Hairspray, featuring his friend from school days Divine, alias Glenn Milstead, is about the most conventional production he's ever placed before us. Shock and Laughter are the tools of his trade, and I shall be interested to see how they intertwine, as he apparently believes they must. Welcome, by the way, John. Thank you. are a book collector. I mean, thousands yeah, of books at home. I do, yeah. Uh, does your but I read them, too. Well, yes. Uh, a I lot was... of book collectors don't read them. <laughs> Do they um, correspond in tone? I don't like the word taste because it gets in the way of everything, I think. But would it surprise people to see your books or would they say, oh, yeah, that's that's a John Waters collection, all right? Well, in parts, but, I mean, I do still read lots of fiction. I, you know, So I do read really good books. And Role Models, my book, I pick my five favorite books and I, I talk about really the books should be hard. I don't think you should read to escape. Escape what? I, I like life. I don't need to escape it. Uh, but at the same time, I do collect things like uh, porno novelizations and stuff that are that are completely ludicrous too that you might think I would have in my collection. Yes, your parents, as you've shown them in your books, were enormously conventional, except in their tolerance of the wildly unconventional in you. Well, they had no choice. I was born six weeks early, so right from the beginning it was trouble. They knew that I was going to be in show business because I had a career as a puppeteer when I was 12. I got variety early. I got these films made. That They were horrified by the content but realized at least I was driven in one field, so they let me do it and they encouraged that, even though they were mortified by by the movies. I mean, nobody said they were good for 10 years ever, but I built a career on bad reviews, much to their embarrassment, basically. Well, they recognized early that you had these special obsessions, but although they registered dismay almost all the time, they they accommodated your needs somehow, is that They fair? did, yeah. and it took me a long while as an adult to realize how incredibly loving that was. Mm. So I tell, you know, I do a show a lot called This Filthy World, and in it, I've noticed lately, it's changed so much, parents bring me their angry children in a last-ditch effort to bond with them by coming to see me, which I find very, very touching. I don't know if it works, but um, I, I like the idea. Is there any way of advising people on this level? It's a very, very yes, personal there, thing. There, I... there certainly is. Just be glad if your kid's causing trouble in high school. That means he's going to be in the arts. Nobody ended up in the arts that didn't cause trouble in high school. And and I think you have to work with what you got. If your daughter comes home and she has bolts in her face, let her open a tattoo shop. Work with what you got. Yeah, you I can't know. order up your kids, and you can't order up your parents. Well, I know a few writers who were expelled from play. You tended not to be. I mean, you're. Oh, you, I got thrown out of everywhere I went, practically. Well, did the you first have... marijuana bust on a college campus oh, was that, me. Well, and yeah. in high school, yeah, they wouldn't let me graduate off the stage in uh, junior high. I didn't get thrown out, but I never, I, you know, I never, I always knew what I wanted to do. I shouldn't mm-hmm. have gone to school. You go to school to figure out what you want to do. You must have seen a lot of TV around then in what was an extraordinary area of, of glitzy cardboard television in America. Yeah, I was on the Howdy Doody show, which was the first big national television show ever. Where My uncle in New York somehow got me on the show, and that's when I realized I was going to be in show business because I walked in and thought, it's all a lie. There's 10 Howdy Doody puppets. 
it's it's all a lie. There's cameras. It's all fake. And this is what I want to be for the rest of my life. I want to be on the inside of this. I wa- I'm I wasn't disillusioned. I was excited by the lies that I realized show business was. Yeah. I ask because you include in your memoir and trash manifesto a snatch of typical school day conversation where you say, did you see Dagmar on TV last night? And that caught my eye because I know a little bit about Dagmar, although she was never seen here. Uh, wasn't she one of the original pneumatic blondes that you've yes, had so I much Yes, I met fun? Dagmar late, right before she died oh, because right. I tried to get her to be the mother in polyester. Ah. And she said that she was retired and... Um, that she was no longer at work, but I was so happy I met her because she was a childhood. Yeah, she was one of the first buxom blonde comedians that was on television, yes. Mm. Now, this is important because you are the patron sinner and and sage of Baltimore and poet. Nobody has celebrated the city to the extent that you have or in the way that you have, but maybe not in the way that the city fathers appreciate. I mean, have they been grateful on the whole? They have been grateful. Governor O'Malley, who was the mayor, when we turned on the Christmas lights, he played um, a Christmas album with me, which was had the song Santa Claus is a Black Man. That's how we turned on the lights. Yeah. Um, but And I, I uh, traveled with Governor O'Malley to approve gay marriage and to get rid of the death penalty, which we did get rid of in Maryland. But they hate The Wire. They hate the TV show The Wire so much, and I love The Wire. And I said to him, look, I've been in Tokyo where they have a map of Baltimore, and it only has three things on it, where all the um, people get killed in the wire, where Divine ate a dog turd, (laughs) and where Barry Levinson movies were. That's on the map. So not everybody cares about the tall ships or the inner harbor. There are, people think that's the best show in the world, all over America. It's one of the first things people say to me all over the world when I go is the wire, the wire, the wire. But they still hate it. They still hate it because they say it makes Baltimore look bad. Well, there are neighborhoods in Baltimore that are like the wire. It's true. Well, you once suggested there should be bumper stickers reading, uh, come to Baltimore and be shocked. I mean, is it that And I said it for so many years that the Chamber of Commerce finally did put it out for a while. But then people said to me, it says, come to Baltimore and be shot? I said, no, No, shocked. (laughs) But, you know, they come up with these ridiculous slogans every year that are mocked in Baltimore. They pay advertising companies a lot. They had the city that reads. There's two bookshops. They changed it to the city that bleeds. Then they had Charm City. They erased the sea, so it's Harm City. Uh, Then they had one, Baltimore, the greatest city in the world. Come on. I like it, too. But let's... Have you ever heard of Paris? You know? It's kind of ridiculous. So, um... And then the the last one was Believe, and they changed it to Be Evil. (laughs) So, uh, you know, it... it, When they come up with these slogans, it's a losing battle. They ought to just save the money and let me do it. Come to Baltimore and be shocked. It's a very particular accent, isn't it? Outsiders find it hard to Yes, I can. That. I think Kathy Bates does it in the New American Horror Show. She does a Baltimore accent. It's, it's kind of like every secretary in the world says, one name in. That's a Baltimore accent. Right. Yeah. yeah. All human life is there, as one of our happily seeming newspapers used to say. And according to your account, Baltimore is the, is the home of the wild hairstyle. I mean, in fact, at one time, it seems to be an almost a, a competitive sport to have these weird do's. And there's a street of a thousand hairdressers. And well, stuff. there That's used always... to be. There used to be kind of white people had these giant teased hairdos. 
Then it went, it's more the African-American people that have these elaborate hairdos with everything weaved in and everything. So it has always been an extreme city for hairdos, yes. The hairdo capital of Baltimore, it is. The hairdo capital of the world, actually. Mm-hmm. A Bee- lot of hairdressers. Beehives. Bee- okay. Well, they're, they're harder to find these days, believe yeah. me. Yeah. But many people come to Baltimore and say, oh, I didn't realize you made documentaries. The yeah. same way I felt when I went to Madrid. Everywhere it looks like a Pedro Alvadomar movie. Yeah. Because, but it's, it is how the people work there. We are reflecting the general style. Yeah. Now, in your filmmaking career, you began to collect people, a troupe. You'd always been fond of carnivals and so on, where people, yeah. there are troops, naturally. And this was almost like a circus troupe that you began assembling. Or did they cluster around you? Which way did it work? Well, I think I assembled them because I don't think any of them believed they could have had a career in show business at the time. I know Divine didn't until later. Uh, Mink yeah. stole. A lot of them didn't go on. Mink and Divine, I think, and Vincent Perenia, who does all the production design for my movie, who did The Wire. Uh, Pat Moran, who cast The Wire later, uh, were with me from the beginning. Um, but then many did not go on to show business. Uh, so I, I think... They were my friends anyway, and I wrote parts for them. The same way every kid makes a movie today on a cell phone. You use your friends when you begin. My friends just were a little more extreme, and um, and I went out there and traveled around the country and, and got them promoted and got them shown. In the early films you made, and indeed all of them, but particularly from the, from the hag in a black leather jacket through to Mondo, Trasho, and beyond, was it deliberate evil that was attracting you or things going horribly wrong with things that could have been good? It was deliberate humor that was driving me, basically, to to make fun of the tyranny of good taste, which certainly my parents did teach me. That, that England, certainly my mother was a big Anglophile. David Lean was the ultimate offender in the tyranny of good taste yeah. that I was rebelling against. So um, I, I think um, at the same time, it was we were never trying to be evil. We were trying to be funny and and surprise whatever the radical movement was of the time. When I made Pink Flamingos was the t- height of the hippie years and pornography had just become legal. Deep Throat was out. So we tried to think, what can you do left that's not illegal? You attended a lot of famous court cases involving hideous acts uh, and the attraction of that was not to see bad people get their just desserts. What was it? To see... Well, I Allegedly think, conventional people like lawyers and judges and expert witnesses brought up against the moral chaos of lives that were totally unlike theirs. Maybe. I, I think that um, if I didn't do what I did, I would be a defense lawyer for the worst people. Were yeah. Criminally insane, probably. That's what I would have done. And uh, I don't go to trials anymore because I get recognized and it's I can't be a spy anymore. I do follow trials. I taught in prison for a long time. I still visit people in prison that I lawyers ask me to help out, and I do. So um, I, I, I'm always fascinated by behavior that I can't imagine doing myself or understand. Which was the first you were satisfied with, by the way, given, given the limitations you were working under in terms of funding? Uh, you know, satisfied. You know, I look at my old films today, like most all directors, if we ever watch them, and just see things we'd like to change. Yeah. Um, I guess my two favorite, if, if from the early Divine movies, I would pick Female Trouble, and for the later movies, I would pick Serial Mom, where my mom said, oh, that was your best movie. Um, uh, I, it was the only movie we had enough money to make, actually, yes. for once. Um, but they're all the same to me. They all have the same morals in them, which is don't judge people, mind your own business, really, and to um, exaggerate what society uses against you and turn it into a style, and you will always win. The shoots themselves were not 
chaotic at all, were they? I mean, the script was there, it was adhered to, people worked extremely hard and long hours and sometimes in very low temperatures. And yes, so. yeah, oh, completely. It was, um, and the people that made those early movies with me still got a percentage of, of the money I get. Uh-huh. You know, from The people that made four or five movies with me were the core that, that stuck with me and were there from the hardest parts. So everything was done with a dedication that uh, there didn't seem to be any place for in the world that you were showing on the screen. But, uh, no, we worked really hard to make those movies, and the actors had to memorize, like, pages and pages of script that would be done in one take because of the camera we used. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. So um, you look back on it, they were hardly amateurs. They were working harder than the Hollywood movie stars I pay today sometimes yeah, yeah, yeah. at 20-hour yeah. days with no food in the middle of the woods in the winter and in your underwear. Yeah, yeah it's, it was not easy to make them. It was hardly glamorous. No. But it was group madness. It was all of us together. What's that psychological? There's a French term for uh, familial, something when you're only insane when you're together. Yes. I think we we had that in a good way because um, we were dedicated to make these movies. You did once say it was a good place to be and a good place to get away from, but are you still there? You I there? am still there. Yeah, it's my main place. I have an apartment in San Francisco, one in New York, and I live in Provincetown in the summer, and I'm on the road half the year. But Baltimore is my home. My office is there. The people that work for me are there. My studio's there. And, uh, yeah, it is more home than ever to me, I think. Yeah. Well, let's talk a little about your longtime crony, Divine. You invented that name. You I did, that yeah. To him, yeah. He died, what, 26 years ago? When he was now. 42 years old, a friend of my friend, the age of my friend's children today. Yeah. How many of your Dreamlanders, your troop, were personal repertory company, I guess? How many do survive now? Well, the, certainly the ones that do, I see all the time Pat Moran, Vincent Perennio, Mink Stoll, still good friends, Mary Vivian Pierce, uh, many of them. But many of them are not with us. You know, the creative community is always hit hard. Yeah. They were hit hard by AIDS. They yeah. were hit, half my friends died. In the 80s, they were hit hard by drug addiction, alcoholism. A lot of things hit sensitive people, believe me. Mm. And um, I think it's always been like that. I think um, they're always in the artistic community. You're going to maybe have a little bit more people that die young in in weird ways because they take more risks. Yeah. Are the survivors on the whole independent artists in other fields now? Yes, yes. Most of them are, or they don't even, they're not in that field at all, but they have nice lives and everything. Yes, and I see them all. I, I just had a big... 50-year um, retrospective at Lincoln Center in New York, and they all came. Everybody came. It was great. It was like being at my funeral only everybody was alive, and I got to see him and hear the nice stuff. Yeah. Well, your own mother's comment on, on uh, your film Mondo Trasher was that you are going to end up in a mental institution or die from an overdose of drugs or commit suicide. Are you surprised that she wasn't right for one of them? No, I wasn't surprised. And she, I think she was just scared, and she didn't know what to think when she saw them. Everybody was saying they were terrible, and then she went to see them. Later in life, she... I mean, I think they the happiest moment when they were on Hairspray on Broadway because finally they can say, we had a great time and their nose didn't grow like Pinocchio. Yeah. Uh, my last film was A Dirty Shame that was about sex addicts. They said, uh, my mother said, oh, what's this one about? And I said, well, it's about sex addicts. She said, oh, maybe we'll die first. But um, they did die before Carsick came out, so they at least didn't get to read it. That's the only good thing about their death. Uh. Back to Divine, though, he, he seemed to move 
deliberately towards a, a recognizably organized, built career. And your movies did too, in a way. You were seeking, you know, proper budgets and some sort of guaranteed distribution. Were those things connected? Did you and Divine develop in parallel in that way? Yes, we both wanted to be commercially successful. I never yeah. felt that there was anything the matter with that. Are you kidding? Yeah. Uh, Divine found a, a separate career in England. He came here yes. as a singer. And I, I remember the great headline for The Sun or one of those papers. It just said his picture and the headline was L-E-C-H-H-H-A. And the subtitle was You Thought Boy George Was Bad. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, But he loved it here in his career. He really had techno music before anybody in a way. Yeah. And, uh, and so, yes, we both wanted to be successful, certainly, without doing something we didn't want to do. I've never directed a movie I didn't write, and I never will. I have no interest to do that. Yeah. Um, but Divine, certainly, the day, bef- the day after he died, he was supposed to start shooting Married with Children, which was a big hit American TV show, and he was going to play the, ma- the male gay uncle, which probably would have been the first gay character on a sitcom. It probably would have been very successful. Yeah. So Divine was just as interested in playing a man as a woman. He had no transgender really bones in his head, no desire to be a woman. He no. never dressed like that except when we were making the movies. Mm-hmm. I mean, he was a drag queen when he was in high school. You know, he would go to parties and drag. But always making fun of it in a way, wearing carrying a chainsaw or painting <laughs> fake scars on his face. Things today that most drag queens do. Not, what drag queen today wants to be Miss America? A really square one. And I think Divine had something to do with that. I'm more interested in transgendered males because to me... They're more confusing because they look like cute boys I'd like, and they like me too. So I, I'm really fascinated by that whole movement in America. Mm-hmm. Were either of you politically minded in any sort of I formal was. way? I you was were. a yippie. Yeah, I went to all the... Divine was definitely not. No, no. <laughs> but I was, yes. Well, there were plenty of things to campaign oh, for we went and to, against. Yeah, yeah, we went to, I went to every riot. riot. Rioting was a social event when the, in the 60s and early 70s when I was young. Yeah, it was like yeah. instead of going to a rave, you went to a riot. Yeah, yeah. But I always stood in the back. I never got arrested. I, I didn't know how to do it. I know how to throw the tear gas back. Yeah. But I never, I knew how to run. Was there an arch enemy in personal terms? Was Nixon the... Oh, yeah, and it was, and of course, Nixon and Agnew. But the worst was my uncle was undersecretary for the interior for Nixon. So it was fairly awkward, but that uncle yeah. turned out to be great. He gave us a big AIDS uh, contribution for Serial Mom. His son went on to be a big producer in Hollywood. So uh, yeah. you never know how people are going to turn out. And he wasn't implicated he in He was Watergate. never implicated in Watergate in any yeah. way, no. no. Uh-huh. But he was still friendly with them. I, I'm fascinated. I want to go to those reunions with the last ones left and here. You yeah. know, it would be interesting. Yeah. You did employ Patty Hearst in a number of films. Yeah. People may, in this country particularly, have half forgotten the name, but she was a kidnap victim who reemerged on the side of the captors, the Symbionese. Liberation Army. It's debatable whether that made her a political figure in any real sense. Well, anyway. to me, she she was telling the truth always. You know, she's alive, and, and they thought she was with them in that building when they burned it down. So yes. they would have killed her. So she made the right decision. Yeah. yeah. And uh, I believe when she was with them, the SLA believed she joined because they only knew her the day they kidnapped her and the day she, up till the day she was freed. Yeah. And um, she did what she did to stay alive. She doesn't think it's funny. But she came to work with us because she said, who wants to sign an autograph for being a kidnapped victim? Sure. Really, who wants to be that? Mm-hmm. But um, she's funny, and she's survived it all very well. Her daughter's turned out great. Her, unfortunately, her husband just died. But Patty's a good friend, and, um, 
and she was telling the truth always and been through. That's what I'm saying. Another extreme story. I'm interested in what people have gone through extreme things. We're coming up to a, a divine recording. You asked him once why he was so popular, and this was in the time when he was fairly comfortably off and living in, in New York and so on. And he said people don't expect a 300-pound man. They like to be shocked. Do they like to be shocked, really? I mean, you're in a position to say, oh, no, they don't, because I've had the opposite reaction so they, many times. They like to be surprised and shocked. It's easy uh-huh. to shock. There's a, today, I think I've been a bad influence in Hollywood because there's like $60 million gross-out Hollywood comedies that aren't funny. Yeah. I think. Yeah, yeah. So um, I, I think people like to be surprised. They like to be a little shocked. It's easy to shock somebody. It's yeah. hard to make them laugh at the same time. Uh-huh. Um, and I try to do that or else you don't change anybody's opinion. If you want to get their attention, I learned in school that term shock value, which is the name of the first book I wrote, which yeah. is you use it to get their attention and yeah. then they listen. Same way if you want to change somebody's uh opinion, even politically, you make them laugh first and then they'll listen. And I believe humor is all political. All of it is because it's um, asking you to laugh at something. And I usually laugh at things I love or can't understand. Yeah. What was the story of Hairspray, by the way? Your film in 1988, what they call a cult success, whatever that may be, and then a Broadway musical, then another film. Did it sort of get away from you progressively or...? No, it got closer each time. Oh, I, bought really? my, I bought my apartment in San Francisco well, because I'm, yeah, of Hairspray. I imagine it financed <laughs> plenty of other stuff. Yeah. <laughs> but, um, and I'm still working on it. I, I was paid once to write a sequel. We'll see if that ever happens. Um, I think Hairspray was based on a real show that came in Baltimore called The Buddy Dean Show that was everywhere else in the country had American bandstand, Dick Clark. There was a a show that came on every afternoon where kids danced together and they had lip-syncing pop stars on it. But ours was only in Baltimore. We didn't get Dick Clark. And the girls' hair was higher. The boys' pants were tighter. The shoes were pointier. And they were on, at the height of that show, five hours a day. That is a huge amount of television on Saturdays on five hours. But Monday to Friday, too. Not five hours, but two and three hours. So I watched it every day, but I imagined these fictitious biographies for these kids, like all sorts of juvenile delinquent stuff, which was never true. But so there was never really a fat girl on the show, never. And um, so I think the reason the movie did work so well, and Hairspray the Musical is now playing in every high school in America now, and I know in Britain too it's playing in all the schools and everything. So obviously I hit a nerve there that the fat girl standing for every kind of outsider there is. And today, it's safe to be an outsider. Everybody wants to be an outsider. When I was young, you didn't want to ever be called that. So I've always said the ultimate irony is I'm now an insider and yeah. proud of it. Yeah, yeah. Ricky Lake was in your original Hairspray and yeah. then went into the talk show business. But usually, you like to import people in the opposite direction from other worlds. I mean, I have, certainly with musicians, yeah. Yeah, yeah. But, but I mean, Crybaby in which... Johnny Depp sent himself up. You, you, you had uh, the rehabilitated Tracy Lords, of yes, porn star. the escape from porn. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Who she's doing great. I still see Tracy, a good friend. Yeah, uh-huh. she was in porn only for a year and a half. Unfortunately, she was too good at it. Yeah, but she was underage, and too she young was for it. Yeah, she was young right. for it. And she, yeah. she even says that you shouldn't be eighteen; you should be twenty-one. She said because I didn't know what I was doing at nineteen either. Mm-hmm. I, I was not mature enough to make the decision to do that. Really. Yeah. Yeah. 
And Cecil, Cecil B. Demented from 2000, that was more or less based on the Patty Hearst case, I think. Well, no, it was a little bit. It was about somebody kidnapping a movie star and forcing her to be in their own movie. And Patty Hearst did play one of the kidnappers' mother, which right. I think was her final washing out of the system yeah. of, of that whole story. That yeah, yeah. yeah, right. Yeah, yeah. I'm tired of talking about yeah, it. Yeah. Um, yeah, and it wasn't really based on me. A lot of people thought it was because I was not naive. Cecil B. DeMented, though, as a real cult leader, had no sense of humor, no fascist, too. Yeah. And that's the difference. Hopefully, I did have a sense of humor. Yeah. By that time, you were dealing with a lot of conventional Hollywood names. You know, Kathleen Turner and Melanie Griffith and Sam Waterson. Did you find that people like that joined in willingly with your Baltimorean world, or was it hard work dealing with Hollywood expectations and reputations? No, the, the Hollywood people I work with were great. They they knew what they were getting into. They wanted to work with the best of my, my crowd. Um, and you could tell, once they got there, they were fine, but I never would have picked somebody, because with the big Hollywood stars, they don't read for you, but you have a, quote, meeting, unquote. Yeah. A meeting is, I think, do they have any sense of humor? Are they going to get through this in Baltimore? And they're looking at me thinking, is this the and it took going to ruin my career. <laughs> and uh, if, I always said if they used the word journey too often, I didn't hire them. Right. <laughs> That's a very sound instinct. Yeah. Yes, I hate that. <laughs> oh, God. It's not a journey. It's a job. Yeah, well, I'm going to give you an airline ticket and you're going to come to Baltimore. Yeah, that's the journey. Yeah, it's the journey. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it's not a spiritual one. No. Was A Dirty Shame of 2004, which had our very own Tracy Ullman in it, yeah. um, was that you working back towards your earlier all-out controversial style because it well, seemed to have that effect. It did, and I was amazed, though, it got an NC-17. I never expected it to get that rating, and it really wasn't made to get that rating. Um, every movie I ever made was a satire of a genre. I had never done a sexploitation movie, and that's what it was. I think Cry Baby was a musical. Hairspray was a dance movie. Serial Mom was a true crime movie. Uh, Hairspray was a teen movie. So each time I was parodying something. So yeah. I grew up watching sexploitation movies, and so it was a joke on that. Yeah. That was one, I think, that did shock the cast, uh, or some of it. Was was it Suzanne Shepard who burst into tears when she first saw the, the proper script? Well, she read the script and then quit, and then, and then came to the first rehearsal, and then she was a rabid cult member. She liked it so much. So, uh, yeah, I think once they realize that we're doing this for humor and get together, yeah. um, it, it went fine with Suzanne Shepard. Yes, but she re- she got the part and then read the script on the train coming to Baltimore and freaked out. But she didn't freak out. I'm still in touch with her, right? So uh, she, um, yeah, it took a a day or two, but once she got to the rehearsal and heard everybody do a table read of the whole thing, she realized the humor of it. Yeah, yeah. Everybody didn't accept accept the Motion Picture Association of America, uh, yeah. Yes. Mm. At a certain stage, you you started other lines of work. I mean, artworks, installations with uh, photographic content and so on, which sounds much more abstract than all this visceral stuff we've been talking about. It's not really because it's written too. I mean, I I kept my art career very, very separate from my um, film career because in America, celebrity is the only obscenity left in the art world. Mm -hmm. So I make fun of that in the stuff I do. so I do, I do have always done that, and that's been another another career. The same way I write books, same way I do spoken word shows. They're all the same to me. It's a way to tell stories, and I'm very happy I have that because the independent film world, as I know it now, is dead. Uh, I routinely made six, seven million dollar movies. There is no such thing today. There are a million or a hundred million. Yeah. Uh, so it's changed. So. Um, 
my last book, Carsick, was great. It was a bestseller list in in, in uh, America. So yeah. um, I'll probably do a movie next rather than a book. We'll see. Sure, yeah. I mean, a book before a movie next, yeah. 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 You go where they like you. John Waters, you write somewhere of admiring or finding interesting people who are quite proud of having abnormal lives and turning their disadvantages into a career. But it seems to me it's usually you who have found these people and made them proud and created those careers for them. Isn't that right? Well, I think I'm career rehab. You know, when Tracy Lords was escaping porn, she came to us and made fun of it by playing a sex bomb. Johnny Depp said, I hate being a teen idol. I said, stick with us, we'll kill that. And he played one in Crybaby. Uh, So, yes, if they can't use it against you and you make fun of it, it does work. It does change the image. And that's why I called myself the trash king in the beginning or everything. And one critic said, you, you beat us to the typewriter. What can we use against you? And maybe that was a reflex to do it that way. You are, I think, 17 days younger than me. So our perspective on world historical events uh, will in some ways be similar. Yes, yes. Yeah. Is it a trashier world now than it used to be, or is the golden age of horrible living past? Well, by trash, I think it is, but I don't know that that's in a good way. I think reality TV is bad trash to me because I think it asks you to feel superior to the people that are in it, something that I don't think I've ever done in my movies. Um, I think people that are famous for just being famous now, like I just read this book, Oscar Wilde in America, which is really a good book about how he came to America unfamous before he had written anything and became famous and then came back to London and got famous and wrote all these things that people remember. Um, But there isn't people like that today. The people, to me, reality stars, there are no such thing as that to me. I believe that's impossible to be one. Um, and I'm not being a snob. I'm just saying that that I, I'm I feel that those shows are asking you to laugh at the people, and mm-hmm. I'm asking you to laugh with me at people that I respect because I can't understand their behavior. It's so bizarre to yeah. me, mm-hmm. and they're usually people that think they're normal, not famous. Reality stars is a contradiction. In that's terms, that's isn't what it? I feel. Yeah, yeah. to me, yeah. and they're Soon completely as stars, written. The reality's gone, if, and the if, reality's wrong too because they're completely written. Yeah. If yeah. there was really a reality show, they were, you'd notice the camera. Yeah. That's why there's technically really ever nothing as a true documentary either because you know the camera's there unless it's spy cam, Yeah, which is illegal. <laughs> of course. You conclude the introduction to Shock Value, your memoir, by thanking us all for allowing you to get away with it. Obviously, that's a jovial remark, but in some way, do you actually feel that you have got away with something? I've gotten away from never having to get a job I hate in my life. I'm never around jerks anymore, and I can afford any book I want without looking at the price. So, yes, I've gotten away with it. Uh, Right, yeah, yeah. Well, you're here to do This Filthy World, your your show. Yes, it's helping. And um, And what goes into that? It's really a 70-minute written monologue completely that I do with no notes or anything that is kind constantly updated and changed. I just did it at a rock festival in Austin the day before I came here, which was great because then I changed all the jokes to rock and roll jokes. Yeah, <laughs> here I have right. some English jokes. Right? Yeah. <laughs> and uh, I, I do it all the time. I do it all year, really. It's my vaudeville act. Well, I wanted to close here with something from The Wizard of Oz, which first gave you the feeling of the power of movies. Yes, it did, certainly, yes. The power of villainy, of good parts, were always the villain. Well, that's right, because typically it was the Wicked Witch that attracted you, not Dorothy or... No, 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 I didn't know why she wanted to go back, you know. (laughs) And even the Cowardly Lion was gay. Yeah, yeah. (laughs) I still like the witch better. But the witch isn't given any songs. I mean, that's typical, too. Yeah, well, that's why I hated Wicked. They made my high school... 
hero and ingenue. The ultimate skin, the ultimate, you know, terrible thing they did was make her pretty and nice. Yeah. So where should we go? I mean, we're without any songs. Uh, is there anything we can rescue from the soundtrack that's sufficiently degenerate to suit the occasion? I don't think there is. In The Wizard of Oz, well, certainly every time, happy you be you. That's the music of the Wicked Witch. That's the the her soldiers doing that march yeah. every time she came in. Yeah. So that kind of to me is her theme. Yeah. Okay. But we have other possibilities. How about Dion Warwick or Chubby Checker? Let's twist again. Which do we have? Let's. Well, I, I think too bad Chubby and Dion never did a duet like yeah. Lady Gaga and yeah. Mr. Yeah. Bennett. Yeah. Um, either one would be fine with me. I like the the song "The Fly" by Chubby Checker because it's the only song I would dance to because you just use your hands. It's the most pitiful dance you could ever do. The Fly and Dion Warwick. God, don't make me over. Certainly my favorite with yeah. her. This has been an education in many ways, as it was bound to be. John Waters, thank you for it. Thank you for having me. John Waters, who, as you've heard, organises his arguments like the most rational of men, so much so that you feel you have to go back to the madness of his movies to check that they and Waters' eloquent sanity come from the same source. You also fear, or at least I do, that a fact-finding trip to Baltimore might be in order. It's recently been billed, touristically, as Charm City. Tell that to John Waters. Many thanks to him and to my producer, Steve Softly. This has been a Wise Buddha production for BBC Radio 2, online, on digital radio and on 88 to 91 FM.